Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's up? How you doing? Just had my vacation, so I am, I'm doing so good. Like, it, I mean, it doesn't matter how bad the news is uh, for me right now. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm doing well. I hope everyone uh, has a chance to have a, a kind of vacation. And if you do, you should listen to our episode on the need for everyone to have even more vacation, which I know Sandy is one of your favorite Sandy Nora episodes of all time. It is. That was a really great episode. It was the the need. It was about the need for us to not work so damn much, and uh, it got really good feedback. I need to listen to that episode again because I have been working nonstop. So thank you for that little bit of inspiration, and I will be doing that. And I am really glad for you that you were able to take some time off. Yeah, it sounds really great. Thanks, thanks. There was um a lot of people thought I kind of just. I don't know, was in trouble, I guess, on Twitter. And so, folks, if you do follow me on Twitter and I just go silent, that's probably a fine sign. If I die, I'll make sure everybody knows is, like, tweeting about that or something befalls me. That's kind of how I, I use Twitter. Sometimes I just I can just I can just vanish. But do you know, Sandy, what was waiting for me when I came home from this trip? Oh, I hope something good. I got money that I was owed from one of Canada's national magazine publishers for an article that was published in April 2021. Oh, you're kidding. I'm not kidding. And I don't even remember where that payment, like ha- what happened to it. That wasn't something I was fighting for. I had, I just completely, after I submitted the files or the forms, I just lost track of it because I was doing other things. So, I mean, on one hand, freelancers, obviously we need to be on top of this stuff, but like on the other hand, fuck off St. Joseph Communications. What the hell is that? <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, for those, for those of you who have never worked freelance, um, it is, it's terrible trying to get paid out there. (laughs) The, the the 5 million different applications that you need to have because every place has a different way of paying you and doesn't just accept, um, invoices and payments like regular fucking organizations do. And then you have to wait 5 million years for somebody to notice that you've actually made your requisition and then, um, get paid on their whim. So it's really, really tough being, um, if you rely on um, freelancing for your income. So, well, I mean, congratulations that you got paid. And it's a good reminder that if <laughs> you are a freelancer, you should join the Canadian Freelance Union. It is a union that does fight for folks like us who might be freelancers, who uh, might need some assistance in advocating um, for getting um, for for better treatment as freelancers, and also for for getting paid. And I hear there were just elections there recently, weren't there? <laughs> well, yes. As listeners might recall, um, yeah, I decided to run and I got elected. So now I guess it's my own fault as uh, my union never did shit for me to get this money back. <laughs> but yes, I'm the president of the Canadian Freelance Union. So if you've ever wanted to join and you've ever wanted to be able to call me and be like, Nora, what the fuck? Um, I mean, you can do that. But now you can do that with uh, a card. You get a you get a card to say you're a member. So that's kind of neat. I never got a card. Okay, fuck. I don't know. We stopped giving up the cards. How, how are you, Sandy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Um, I have 
I'm still in Toronto. (laughs) I feel like (laughs) I've been in Toronto since the beginning of time, and uh, it's great. It's been good to to, uh, be here for a longer period of time and be able to catch up with people. And um, there's two things on my mind being in Toronto. Can I tell you what's been on my mind? Yes, I'd love to hear it. One is um, so COVID. Uh, (laughs) It's still a thing. And it appears to be putting quite a bit of stress on the hospital system lately, but it's no longer like in the news. So people are not talking about it or don't know it. And I feel like very many people around me are starting to get COVID again or someone that I know or, you know, like it just seems to be way more in the atmosphere. And I'm also thinking about it because, um, you know, in L.A., um, where I think that I live, although I'm not sure anymore. <laughs> um, in LA, you know, they brought back the mask mandates because um, this wave of um, Omicron derivative has been um, far more harmful uh, uh, in LA than than even Delta. And so, um, as I I I haven't heard that being talked about really in the news. Um, either in Toronto or in Canada. And so that's been on my mind. And I'm curious about what you think about that. And then the other thing that's been on my mind, almost every single conversation that I've had while I've been out here, people are really, really concerned about two things. One, it seems like everyone's falling apart. It seems like during this period of time, this high inflation, austerity is coming back, politics don't make sense, everything's irrational, um, the future looks bleak. It, it seems like everyone's falling apart. And it also seems like everyone's really frustrated with the state of organizing on the left. And no one knows really what to do about it. And people are nervous to talk about it. But everyone seems to be feeling the same thing. Those are the two things that are on my mind. Well, and I am also hearing very, very similar things as I'm able to get out into the world or, I mean, just in messages or whatever, people being in touch with me. So I think that this is definitely worth focusing on this episode. Why are we all falling apart? What's going on? What can we do about it? Now, before we get to that... And before we get to your first issue, should we thank some people? I would love to thank some people. Awesome. I would too. This week, thank you so, so much to everyone who shared last week's episode or other episodes. We know that the uh, critiquing critique episode has been shared a couple of times again as well. Um, And thanks also to everybody who's changed their donation or donated to the show for the first time, especially Daniel, Leah, Becky, Matthew, Nick, Honkled, and Gayu. Thank you so, so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. We really do. Okay, so Nora, COVID expert. Yeah. That you are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Think? Well, so obviously you're right. There's no discussion about going back to anything. There's barely a discussion of where cases are. And I certainly have the same experiences uh, in Quebec City. People are getting COVID and you're like, oh, okay. Um, I, I made this point a couple of weeks ago, and I think that it's something that people really need to think hard about. 
Um, and let me know if I made it on the podcast, <laughs> because maybe I did. But politicians are not acting as if the pandemic is over. They're acting as if the pandemic never happened. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And that's a fundamental difference, because acting as if the pandemic is over at least acknowledges what we went through, at least acknowledges that we had this experience, that there's um, after effects or side effects or traumas. And, and while we would be all very angry if they were acting as if the pandemic was over, it's actually far, far worse than that. They're acting as if the pandemic never happened. And when you act as if the pandemic never happened, that means that there isn't a single piece of legislation, there's no initiatives, there's nothing to try and mitigate things as they are today and fix things as they were broken last year or two years ago. You know, I've said this online and people are like, that's not true. Like, that's that's not true at all. And I'm, I challenge people to say, well, we'll name a piece of legislation in any part of Canada that acts as if we had a pandemic, that recognizes that there are things happening to society as a result of the last two and a half years. And there's fucking nothing. There's fuck all. And in, in, in behaving like this, it means that there's like no closure when it will be finished eventually. There's, there's no addressing any of the issues that we've been talking about for the last two and a half, two and a half years, which then feeds into, I think, the, the, the bigger topic of today's episode, which is why people are, feel like or they are falling apart. But then there's also just no pressure to do anything because it's not that the pandemic's over. It's that nothing has happened, that things are back to as they were in 2019. And there's a difference between, you know, someone seeing family and, and acting similar to how they acted in 2019, let's say, or going to be able to have a summer that looked closer to 2019 or your job is going back to things that look like it was before all of this started. There's a difference between that and how the state acts. And I think that humans need to feel normalcy. Humans need to, to hang on to things as they've always known them to be. And I think that that is fine. And that's that's not the same thing as uh, as a Scott Moe or a Doug Ford or a John Horgan literally acting as if the pandemic has never happened. And I think that's like crazy making. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I think that's really that that is what is is making people the most it's the most difficult to deal with because it's like. Whoa, 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 what, what, what happened to every, like, what happened to the 42,000 people who have died? What happened to all of the things that the, 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 the crisis in long-term care and um, the loneliness and isolation and the crises at work and all the people that died and all the people that have long COVID. And it's like, nothing happened to them because it didn't happen. Nothing happened. And if we look in, at history, that is certainly how people decided to mark the uh, the Spanish flu, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the flu of 1919, where mm-hmm. it was just like this never happened. And of course, it was probably even a bit easier to do that then because, well, maybe easier for a couple of reasons. One, because they don't have the same kind of monitoring of these viruses as we do. But two, they were in the shadow of World War One, and people had been, you know, living through mass death for, for five years by then. So... You know, I think that that's a fundamental shift in how we understand what's happening. And it also allows us to see um, what a path forward might might be, which isn't to cling to we're still in a pandemic because the human nature is that we don't want to be in this pandemic. That's not going to actually like bring people together, but that it's actually what did we learn and what are we completely and actively being told to forget? Well, I mean, I agree with you to a point. The government is definitely responding as though there was a pandemic inclined back the Serb. Uh, except the way that they're even doing that is by just taxing you more. And then all these people are like, wait, I've never been charged $4,000 for my taxes. What the hell is this? 
with no mention of the Serb. <laughs> Well, of course, I'm being facetious yeah, on that I know, point, and that the government, like, the, like this is, I mean, I, it's just like the ultimate cruelty to go after people who were desperate and didn't read all of your fucking fine print that you never should have had in the first place because you should have just given out that money <laughs> with no strings attached to everybody who wanted it. Um, and, uh, you know, to all of these people who needed it, um, because they took it, like if you took it, you fucking needed it. Okay. Um, they, for those people to now have that clawed back at this moment in history, which is also a different moment, this, this moment of high inflation, of high austerity, um, (laughs) I mean, fuck the government, man. Oh yeah. (laughs) just like... It it is just a level of cruelty that is actually unfathomable for me to understand what has to be going through someone's brain to make that argument in some sort of um, you know bureaucratic setting and to have all sorts of people be like yeah I agree like I just I don't understand that level of cruelty um, and so if that is affecting you I fuck <laughs> fuck the government yeah absolutely and this and this should be something that. I mean, it's easy for for this to make people so angry and disenfranchised that they don't want to touch anything with a 10-foot pole. But it it should be like at some level we should be trying to use this to mobilize. Um, And it is very interesting that there aren't any formal organizations that have mobilized around the CERB or have tried to organize people around the CERB because people are very angry and desperate and being forced to pay it back in this moment is just like so cruel, as you say. But that also, I think, feeds into this conversation of, of the broader... what the hell is going on with us and how, why can we not get our shit together kind of discussion that I think the rest of this episode is going to be about. Yeah. So, I mean, Nora, when I say that to you, when I tell you that these are the conversations that I've been having and, um, and that, you know, everyone's kind of disillusioned and frustrated and exhausted and worried and confused and maybe even scared, like what, are some of the first things that go through your mind? Are you experiencing some of the same conversations in your world? And um, and how are you responding to them? Yes, I am definitely hearing that from, from people. There's, there's a range of trying to make sense of this current moment that was for sure present before the pandemic, like trying to understand why are people so lonely? Why are people so isolated? How, why is it so hard to make friends? Why don't, why am I turning to apps to try and, you know, create new friendships or going on blind dates kind of things to find new friends, things that I think we've never really had a, a popular deconstruction or explanation of that can help satisfy our understandings of what's that can help satisfy our feelings of like what the fuck is going on in the world right now and then you throw into the middle of it this nuclear bomb of the pandemic and for me it has certainly been clarifying but I I know from other people it seems like it has been absolutely disorganizing not clarifying um confusing uh, and maybe it's maybe it's kind of like when you you know you drop a massive fucking nuclear bomb into the ocean and then everything on the ocean floor just gets like thrown up into the air and that's where people are kind of living right now is in ocean floor water being like what the fuck I can't even see the way up I can't see the way across this doesn't make any sense and um, and so 
I think, you know, in some ways Quebec is a little bit different because there are still social networks that exist here that I know just don't exist in other parts of Canada. Um, and I'll give you an example. So there's two left-wing members of provincial parliament, members of the National Assembly in Quebec City. Uh, Quebec City is not a left-wing place. It's a very right-wing place. So they're kind of two sitting deputies in an island of complete fucking right-wing um, shit. And now, every year now, uh, since they've been elected, they rent out a cottage space and invite everybody to come. You just get a ticket. The tickets are free. It reserves your spot. You get a cab and you get a tent. You bring, you sleep on the grass, whatever. Um, and they do this for the, for, for St. Jean-Baptiste, which was the week before um, Canada Day, because that's, that's when Quebec celebrates the first of two long weekends in a row, um, <laughs> which is the funny thing about Quebec in June. And this year, Sandy, do you know how many people went? How many people do you think would go to something like this organized by two members of parliament, mm. provincial parliament? Huh, uh, where I am, uh, yeah. not many, <laughs> 20, 20, no. <laughs> 25, 20, 20, 50 yeah. would be, yeah, yeah, yeah. 20 and maybe yeah. in kids, right? So more than a thousand people went Whoa, this year. Whoa, what? <laughs> wow. And I, I mean, I'd rather jump off of a cliff than go to an event like that, but I can absolutely appreciate why it would be so popular. And it's like not too far from Quebec City. They offer ride shares. Um, you can bike there. It's, you know, it'd be a longish bike ride. I mean, it's an hour, an hour drive, but you can totally bike there. There's a bike highway that goes there. Um, it's a space that people probably know. And it's building the kind of community that is absolutely lacking. And it's two members of provincial national assembly who... I don't know who we could say that's not really their job or that absolutely is their job, but it's not like it was like they didn't use resources to do it. People went and covered costs. It's just like it's so smart, right? And that kind of building community, that kind of seeing this this moment or these moments and, and needing to to build something around where we are to bring people together, to build those relationships, to build romantic relationships. I mean, how many fucking kids are conceived at this thing? I don't even want to think about, but for sure, like not zero. Um, that has a tremendous impact on creating those human relationships and those, those connections. And I can only imagine how someone hearing what I'm saying would be thinking about what kind of similar things they have in their neck of the woods and other parts of this country. Like it seems very, impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, other than maybe like the folk music world, which of course, like everything's been decimated because of COVID. But that lack of community, that lack of togetherness is deadly. And it's, it's caused by capitalism, and it's caused by austerity, and it's caused by colonialism and racism. And we don't talk about it in those terms enough and instead, it just remains part of this, like, of the ether of what we're all existing in being like, oh, man, why do we all feel so shitty? Yeah, and I think you can um, you can see the effects of that in the way that people um, interact with one another on social media, the sort of... Um, you know, you in particular have experienced this multiple times, like the way that people who may not know you um, can be driven into some sort of like mobby type of interaction with you. Um, because I don't know, perhaps uh, Twitter or Instagram is approximating something that feels like 
for a moment, for a deeply dissatisfying moment, something that feels like a community. I am a part of a community that is doing this thing, which is yelling at Nora or, um, you know, yelling at something. Who knows what it is? Maybe you're yelling at the Supreme Court in the United States and that's all you got. That's, so that's what you're doing. Um, it doesn't feel like there's anything else to do. And people are nervous to figure out, well, maybe not nervous, but don't know how to figure out what to do. But but there is a certain level of nervousness to this stuff, too, that I want to talk about. I've been talking to people who are active in the climate crisis movement, and I've been talking to a lot of people who are active in the reproductive justice movement in the United States. And one thing that I really wanted to understand uh, from people in the United States that I was talking to, um, I was just like, you know, we kind of, we like, we all knew that this Supreme Court decision um, in Dobbs v. Jackson was coming and that it was going to overturn Roe v. Wade and it was going to overturn Casey and it was going to eliminate the constitutional protections um, that uh, guarantee people access to abortion across the United States. We knew that. <laughs> we knew it the moment that uh, Justice Kavanaugh was um, confirmed. And yet, here we are. We knew it when Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed. We knew it when the the uh, opinion that Justice Alito wrote was released. And yet, here we are. In all of that time, in all of that timeline, multiple things could have been organized, like, I don't know, for example, a mass buying of pills um, <laughs> to distribute, like, I don't know, um, driving networks or networks for travel for people, whatever it is, um, uh, responses out in the street that were more organized than what we saw. Like many things could have been organized within the years uh, and then the months of each of these sort of flashpoints where we knew what was going to happen. We knew what was going to arise. But they didn't. And when I asked people about it, um, the, the response was, oh, yeah, our um, our movement is like fully in the throes of like an internal crisis right now. We're all fighting with one another. When I talk to people in the climate crisis, same thing. People are uh, in, the, in the movement against the climate crisis. Same thing. People are really uh, struggling right now uh, because uh, there's a lot of internal frustrations with one another and a lot of internal fighting. And I can say for sure that I've experienced this in, um, you know, in the Black Liberation Movement. And although I don't think that it has made us at a standstill, although people might think we're at a standstill, we're just quieter with what we're doing. And we're doing um, things uh, that don't require you to be like on Twitter or Instagram, you know, we're um, trying to shore up skills building and power building in places of the country that don't get the same sort of attention as Toronto, Montreal or Vancouver. And so I but, you know, it's interesting to me that all of this stuff is happening to all of these different movements that are also all experiencing moments of um, urgent crisis. And as a result of these uh, sort of internal struggles are unable to respond um, in the way that we need to be responding. And I don't want people to take this as some sort of 
you know, uh, we shouldn't be focused on making things internally right because, uh, you know, that it's just a distraction. Um, that's not quite what I'm saying. I just think that as we are internally trying to be better, if that is truly what we're trying to do, and we should really think about whether or not we're trying to do that, um, or if we're trying to do something else in these sort of internal struggles that our movements are having, we cannot lose sight of of the ultimate targets. If we lose sight of the ultimate targets, what the fuck? What the fuck are we doing? If you know, like, the, what is the purpose to our existence? We need to move aside, train some new people, and figure out um, if you know another set of bodies would be better at doing this because. Um, you know, the stakes are too high and the consequences are are really palpable. And I think that this is also contributing to collectively this moment of feeling like, Jesus Christ, like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what are we to do? Everything is falling apart because there's nowhere to really turn to that feels like it's got some handle on something. Yeah, and it's important to note that this is by design, right? Like people who are in involved in left-wing movements are also the people who are most likely most impacted by things like the Serb clawback or high gas prices or the high cost of food, right? Being evicted. Like these are things that stress average people and our movements are run by average people or average people are involved in our movements. And so as people are struggling to keep it together for themselves, of course, movements are going to struggle to keep it together more broadly because if people aren't taking care of individually, like being able to, you know, do good work is going to be very, very difficult, obviously. Um, but again, knowing that we don't have ways to get out of this, because if if the government can fuck us all up and that crushes all left wing movements, then they're always just going to be fucking us up. And they know that. Right. Like, it's so interesting. I'm reading a book called The Roots of War which was written in 1971 about how the United States is addicted to war and why they're addicted to war. And it was written, of course, just just at the tail end, like Vietnam was not yet finished, finished, but it was very clearly a, a failure. And it's so fascinating to read this uh, warning saying, if we don't stop doing what we're doing, we will have another Vietnam. It will be it will be horrible and we cannot justify that. And then you look back and it's like, how many fucking other Vietnams the United States had? Like many. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Um, but these issues continue to cycle through and cycle through. And, and one of the, the, the preoccupations of people in power in the way that this book talks about it is um, being preoccupied by revolutionary spirit and revolutionary sentiment. And that 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 capitalism and the, the United States being the number one global power, their reason to exist was to crush communist and revolutionary organizing in every corner of the globe, especially back at home, every time it reared its head. Now, we fast forward 50 fucking years. We're seeing the United States in decline. Everything in the book basically has come true again and again and again. But the, that need for the state to crush revolutionary organizing is so much more obvious now that the project of capitalism has been very effective at crushing revolutionary organizing. So it's not just imposing capitalism on countries or finding ways to bomb countries into being part of the American fucking plan or whatever, but it's also that everything that the state can do to destroy 
revolutionary organizing, it will do. And so what does that mean? That means that today what we have, like what passes for revolutionary organizing in Canada, I mean, there's there's only a couple of examples of, of organizing that truly uh, confronts the state or that the state is afraid of. Um, and, and by and large, that is indigenous organizing, that is black-led organizing. And to a lesser extent, though, it definitely could continue to, like it could be a big threat, the, the you know, organizing around the environmental movement. Um, but if the people who would lead those movements are constantly under the thumb of the state and Canada doesn't need to jail them, Canada can survey them and those those files will stay private for fucking decades and we, we'll, we'll only find out here and there about surveillance. They just need to turn the screws to average people because we're not the fucking Galen Westons of the left. There's no one that's getting rich on fucking anything on the left. Um, and, and, and I think that's a whole other thing. People often fucking talk like people get rich on the left. It's like they do not. Mm -hmm. I mean, fucking like some labor leaders aside, but that's even, even that's a handful of fucking people. If you can constantly turn the screws to the, to people on the left, then obviously we're going to be ensnared by this stuff. And so how do we have the clarity to be able to, to rise above this or sidestep this or hide from this? while also taking care of, of the, the needs that we have that are so susceptible to being crushed or, or tightened or ruined or whatever by the state? Well, I mean, part of it is that we need to have the ability to have conversations with one another about these things, about these very ways that people are being taxed um, and about the, the, the things that are making us feel... Uh, immobile in our movements, uh, what what the things are that the state is doing that is making us feel immobile. And that actually takes a level of political education that perhaps, um, you know, we uh, in the tradition of the left, you know, um, teaching one another and educating one another um, and ensuring that people have a certain level of consciousness around um, economic realities. I don't know if we're doing that as effectively as um, previous uh, iterations of the left have have done so that people when they are feeling the stress um, of a system that is 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 stretching them further and further beyond their capacity are not saying Nora's a fuck up in this in this uh, collective that we have she never fucking does anything and I'm fucking sick of her and I'm gonna make sure that everybody knows that she's fucking useless. Um, not say I'm not, and I'm not, you know, um, pointing to any specific thing that has actually happened. I'm just like, this is purely hypothetical are not saying that to Nora, but are saying like, Nora, are you okay? Is something going on in your life? A whole bunch of different things have just, um, happened that, you know, maybe you committed to, or we've noticed that you're different, something's going on here. And how can we, as a collective, come together and support you while also supporting the work that needs to be done? I think that that needs to be a part of it. That needs to be a part of the conversation. Um, I was speaking to also an academic recently, someone who teaches at a, a major university in Toronto, and, you know, when I, when I worked at uh, QP 3903 um, as a staff representative, one of the things that 
we always knew about sessionals and faculty members and people who teach is that when people are having a really hard time, when undergraduate students are having a really hard time, um, the first people who know are are usually sessionals or faculty members who are teaching these students. And it turns out right now, um, this person divulged to me that over 50% of the undergrads in every single one of her classes um, need some sort of accommodation for mental health. And she's never, ever, ever seen that before. And she's been teaching for years. Wow. That, I mean, that's, that's a systemic thing. It's a systemic thing that I'm sure to those people feels very isolating, right? It, it feels like, like it's an individual experience, but that's a systemic experience. If so, like that sort of jump in numbers of people needing support. A- another thing that this person mentioned that um, I didn't realize was like a marker of this sort of thing um, in the academic space is that plagiarism has gone up significantly. Right. Of course. Yeah. Because people are really struggling. People are really struggling to um, to to accomplish what they need to accomplish, what they're being told that they absolutely must accomplish in the way that they have to accomplish it. And so are seeking, you know, shortcuts or ways to 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 get through um, what feels like an impossible moment. I mean, these this is a systemic issue. And if we are constantly taking a look at this systemic issue, that is also an economic issue. You know, and refusing to talk about economics. Just a few episodes ago, we talked about how resistant we are in our society to talk about work. You know, refusing to talk about work, money, and class, like the ways that these things all impact us. I, I mean, I feel like we're we're always just going to be like looking at each other, like what the fuck is going on, mm-hmm. um, if we're unable to diagnose these issues and to respond to them in ways that make sense and isn't us really like policing each other, but always, always, always making sure that we have the power analysis to understand when this is the fault of the state. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, I'm listening to what you're talking about and, I'm, and my, my the wheels are turning in my head already of like, what could they do in the academic space? Um, and maybe I'll throw out some just some ideas and then I can talk maybe about what I'm hoping to do um, with the freelancing world because, you know, I've got some ideas there too that I get to now put into action as the president of the freelance union. But, you know, if professors are seeing this, professors like activist professors, you know, could be calling meetings with student activists and being like, are you seeing this? This is what we're seeing. It's like, holy fuck, what kind of levers can we pull on? Do you start to actually pull together student uh, organizations across alliances with whatever their parent federation might be, or maybe they're unaligned, or maybe it's like student groups, or maybe it's at the course level instead of at the, or the faculty level instead of at the school level. I mean, there's ways to get people together and being like, holy fuck, what are we going to do? And to not worry about having all the answers in advance, because the answers are going to be in the room in the meeting that you call. And that you're like, okay, so who else is going to see this? Like, what's it like for the, for the minimum wage workers on campus? What's it like for the workers who, I don't know, directly have connections with things like like gas prices that are shooting through the roof. Like there's different things that you can, you know, get creative and 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 identify how to slice and and group people together based on where they are located on a campus. And you can think in a town, it's very, very, very similar. Um, in a in a city, it's very similar. Like these, there's a lot of things that we can do. I'm I'm looking at the freelancing world, knowing that people have a lot of the issues that they have because they come to us with the issues and we solve them at like putting out fires. We 
do individual kind of uh, help for people because the individual support work is is very important as well. But to then step back and say, well, why why can St. Joseph Communications not fucking pay me for a year and two months? Oh, well, maybe because freelancers have never actually tried to confront anybody in in positions of, of ownership or management or leadership in the writing world. And there's a whole bunch of very legitimate and real reasons for that. So what are we going to do? We're going to try and build together people who are ready to fight, get some of the things written down on papers. Everyone's freelance and everyone's transitory. So we're going to start first through an online way, a portal, and then we're going to go from there and try to get meetings with people and see what we can do. Not actually knowing if this is going to be a complete bust or maybe there's a magazine that we can get to improve the working conditions like like that would be the lowest bar one magazine try to fix some basic stuff highest bar we actually create something that magazine uh, and newspaper and whatever online news organizations are afraid of right but but this this is what we have to do because if we're if if any of us watching all this stuff has just a little bit of energy a little bit of energy to put into doing something different and new and whatever we got to do it like now is the fucking time because if it's not now, then it's literally never. I mean, we had excuses during the pandemic, like we couldn't see each other and we didn't know what's going on and things were really tough, right? We had very legitimate reasons during the pandemic's heyday, the 2020, 2021, 2022, we're now more used to the pandemic. We're more used to COVID. We're starting to see people again. We're in the summer, which is going to be the safest of all of all seasons. We know that because COVID will come back after. I mean, it's still here, but it will surge once it gets colder again. What are we doing? (laughs) What are we Mm -hmm. doing? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh, my God. And then to do these things with an attitude of yeah, if people flake off, if people can't commit to things, if people aren't able to, to to then find ways to plug people in at the level that they're able to do, so it isn't actually going to collapse if one person just disappears for a period of time, or to have enough people that you're not all friends, <laughs> that there's no desire to be friends, um, and then of course on our own stuff, what I you know this this is completely not the subject, but do people have things? that aren't work, that Mm -hmm. aren't a side hustle, Mm -hmm. that you can make friends at. And if you don't, find something. Surely you can find something. And maybe that means taking a risk with a a softball league, (laughs) or maybe that means uh, brushing off your soccer shoes and getting back on the field, or maybe that means a walking club, or maybe that means a reading club, or maybe that means a knitting club. What the fuck ever we have to start injecting this back into our lives because the online space has tricked us into thinking that our friends are online and, and, and text is not enough. We need to be we need to have much more than simply text. If we're going to have the relationships with one another, it needs to hear the sound of people's voices. We need to be in presence with one another. We need to be working alongside one another on projects. And those projects don't always have to be trying to save the world or to achieve something, but they also should be if you have the capacity and the time to be able to do that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's there's also something here about uh, about like fear and the way that social media makes us fear 
well, not just social media, but the way that the uh, social media has tricked the left into thinking that uh, certain types of engagement online, like, is activism. Um, uh, and, yes. And, you know, a lot of that sort of um, engagement online, like, you know, um, just writing 128 characters, or how many characters is it actually now? Like, 256, whatever it is. 280. 280 or something. 280. Okay, whatever. <laughs> um, the 280 characters, or, like, making a TikTok that's, like, uh, a minute that provides uh, some information on something thing is activism and that's all we need and we just need to keep churning out content um that is um some sort of political education or maybe not or something that feels like political education or like tearing down a system or like tearing down even each other i mean these things are rewarded on social media and makes it feel as though we are doing something um that uh that is worthwhile, that is uh, a part of the movement. But I think we talked about this at some point before, that that sort of engagement can be deeply dissatisfying. And part of the reason why it's deeply dissatisfying is because it, it's false. It's a trick. It is tricking you into believing that you're doing something. These are, um, you know, uh, corporate entities that are for profit, and what you are doing are providing the raw materials for that entity to 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 get rich. <laughs> That's really what it is. And um, what will go viral or what will be seen by many people is often things that have to do with conflict, because humans st- like look like to look at conflict, and. Um, and those eyes then turn into dollars. We need to be really cautious about the way that uh, social media is making us interact with one another. Um, it is taking us to a space um, of binaries. And another episode that I really uh, encourage folks to listen to, um, if you're feeling a little, uh, you know, eh, about some of this stuff, is to to think of, is to to listen to our episode on binary thinking. Um, Social media encourages binary thinking. It encourages the type of thought where if if Nora posts something that I disagree with, that, you know, we're cool to, like, call out Nora, like, to almost become, like, uh, activist police in a way, which is uh, really gross, um, and then say, you know, you're wrong, not in a way to have a discussion to try to come to a conclusion about um, what principles are behind what Nora is saying and what principles are behind what I believe and whether or not they're reconcilable or not, or if we're just in two different places and we can't come together on that one thing. Um, but social media um, doesn't allow for all of that nuance and discussion. What it does is, you know, whoever has the most followers kinds of wins, I suppose, <laughs> and says Nora is not worth organizing with at all if I ever disagree with her on anything. And that's the way that it works. And that is a false, another false way of engaging with one another that is having a deeply um, negative impact on our ability to respond to all sorts of things because people are terrified to say when they don't agree with something or when something um, uh, feels like uh, it's something that could be improved or something that could be um, uh, critiqued for the better because they might get critiques. They might be the person who's on the receiving end of some of this stuff. And it's just, when the stakes are so high, if your entire social um, social world comes from these spaces and you're not doing the sorts of things that Nora just talked about, if you don't have like a soccer club or other interests or whatever, it then becomes 
it becomes like such a risk to say, actually, I disagree with you um, because you might be wading into a territory where you lose all of your social relations, which are also already so um, superficially wound uh, in, in, in a way that it, it doesn't feel concrete, that feels like you could lose it at any moment. And so that sort of thing, um, that sort of binary engagement with one another, it is not only dangerous because of, you know, the social media aspect, the corporate aspect, the way it's all driven by money, even if it doesn't feel that way, but it's dangerous because the solutions to the problems in our world are tied up in our ability to have discussions with one another, to have debate with one another, and to deepen our principles and understanding of the world through our engagement with one another. And if we're not able to do that anymore because we are just so reliant on these uh, false tools to create community with one another, we, we really, really have a problem with these, these very, very large looming issues that are just getting larger and, um, and really threatening our ability to live dignified lives, if live at all, into the future. Yeah, I mean, put another way, uh, if, if you're afraid of criticism from people on your side, your friends or people on the left... Know that the criticism from people on the right, when you become more and more effective and you learn how to do things better and, be, and you become more of a threat to them, will be fucking way worse. Yeah. <laughs> way worse. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but the way to get past that isn't to necessarily run head into like conflict or anything like that, but is to build yourself into a, a world that you're so comfortable with that people can say whatever the fuck they want about you and it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't actually matter. And so, I mean, I, do, I really have, like, my advice, I guess, for anybody who's who's wants to be more of an activist, who's not sure what to do, doesn't know where to go, um, and is very afraid of doing the wrong thing, you've got two options. One, you use social media as if you don't give a fuck. Or two, you don't use social media beyond shit posting or beyond talking about your day or beyond, you know, something that's not politics. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. the most important work you do is offline. Everybody's yeah. like anybody whose worth is fucking anything. The most important work they do is the work that you only hear about or maybe you see about or maybe someone's written about some sort of amazing uh, initiative. Right. That's the thing that's important. It isn't what you see on Twitter. Mm -hmm. It isn't what you see on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And and, t and I mean, TikTok, uh, you know, I know people are trying to do political education on TikTok, but I think there is a limit to that. But 100%. fuck, I mean, go ahead. Like, Christ, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. But if if you've got a thin skin, you don't need to try and toughen up necessarily. Just don't use social media for activism and for politics. Just don't. Do your stuff in the real world where it counts or use it the way I use it and be like, whatever, <laughs> like fucking whatever. <laughs> I'm I'm the first option, <laughs> like super pulled back. I'm just like whatever, man. <laughs> I'm having real conversations with real people. Yeah. That's this is how, and yeah, I you know again, doing other things also will help you through this stuff because as someone who um, you know I do capoeira and I'm like not great at it. Okay, like I've said this many times before, it's an extremely humbling experience. It's really great for me. <laughs> it's like to do this thing for so many years that I'm like not 
amazing at. But it's like, it's really, um, it's like teachable, super teachable. Like, I can't get better at it without fucking up a million times. <laughs> like, I cannot throw a good kick without being kicked in the face multiple times. And I have been kicked in the face <laughs> multiple times. Um, and landing those few kicks in other people's faces uh, that I have over the years, like comes because as a result of being super terrified, trying a thing and falling flat on my ass and on my back and being like, that was terrifyingly embarrassing. I'm still going to go the next day. It's the same shit, right? Like we, there's ways that we experience this um, in communication with one another, and there's way that we ways that we experience this in our bodies. There's ways that we experience this, like when we make a fucking meal, you know, like this. This is just the way the world works, and we're, if we're not allowing ourselves to exist in the world in the way that the world should work, what we're actually doing is just recreating like uh, the systems that we live in, um, like this, like a really oppressive system, but like um, in in a subculture. And that's not like, who wants that? Not me, not I. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. So um, in conclusion, the things that are facing us are too big. They're too big. I know. They feel too big. um, And it, it feels like we don't have any power over them. That's not true, though. We do have power over them. But in order to harness that power, we need to do the thing that feels a little, maybe a little bit more uncomfortable in 2022 than it did in 2004, which is that we need to have relationships with people. We need to be able to communicate with one another. We need to be able to fuck up. We need to be able to hold people as they fuck up. We need to be able to allow people to transform. I mean, I think that's supposed to be part of the project is transformation of people and ourselves. And we need to be able to move in it. We can't be immobile in the face of these things that are facing us. And we can't do just the easy thing. You know, like it's easy to to target Nora because she's... Oh, so targetable. Like always shitposting, but also... <laughs> But but because she's right there, I can reach her, I can uh, impact her, I can say like you used the wrong word today and as a result nobody should ever work with you or whatever the fuck it is um, this week. But and and that might feel really good to to have that that moment. And I I know that as an activist, I've been that person. Like I know, um, like way back in I would say like 2008 or 2009, like having moments of being able to say to someone, like. I got one up on you on this particular issue. You don't understand it properly. Um, That felt like, ah, yeah, I did something there. But it's, again, deeply dissatisfying because that person isn't my target. (laughs) The person who's just trying, just like I was just trying years before, who's just trying to figure it out and is coming into their political education. It's just too easy to keep focusing on this low-hanging fruit. If we all turn our focus to the place where it needs to be, which is at power, and the people who are organizing the system in such a way that it is impossible to live in and impossible to be um, to have to be in your right mind in. That's that is the better target. And we need to be more focused on that target than we are um, navel gazing and trying to, you know, and just like uh, being obsessed with ourselves. It's a really weird kind of narcissism, I think, which 
Social media does that to you, too. Mm. 